But what we do have, we're going to discuss today in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. I, I am very excited about this chapter in the book of Ephesians. It talks about what God has done in you, in Christ Jesus. You know him as your Savior. I want, I want you to understand every single word in this passage. You, as a believer in Christ, have. Alright? This is not designed just for certain people. Uh, special people. Uh, significant spiritual people. This isn't uh, uh, a study of somebody else's biography. In Christ Jesus, this is yours. And this is mine. And we need to know these things. These are God's investments in us. And he does everything with a purpose. He doesn't just randomly do things. He, he does things with a purpose. And if he's done all this in us, there must be a good reason, right? And I believe, the, at least I'm using in our description here, the reason for him doing these things is that we might serve him. And how, how uh, wonderful it is to know that he has enabled us and he has uh, uh, guided us and he has prepared for us what he would have us to do. But also, as we look today, he's also freed us to serve him. And that's where we are in verse number 7. And we're going to spill into verse number 8 a little bit today. But it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. I love that last phrase. Which He lavished on us. Heavenly Father, we are so dependent upon You. We don't know it very well, but we do need to recognize who you are, who we are, and how much you love us and what you have done for us and what you're doing in us now. Lord, help us in our study here today to grasp it and to, to apply it, and to live in light of it. We certainly do want to serve you better and this passage will help us. So thank you, Lord, for having it written for our, our edification here today that we might grow up and understand what you are doing in our midst. We praise you for it today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we talked last week, and, and about every other week or so I get into this section where we can, it's like enjoying dessert. There's so many great things he has done for us. And we were able to look last time as the uh, words uh, uh, according to the riches of his grace and through his blood. And we've seen how he's freely bestowed these things on us in the beloved. And, and we've enjoyed all those phrases up to verse number 7 and 8. And today we're going to actually spend a little time in defining what he has given to us. We have... That's the first two words in, in verse 7. In him we have redemption. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that redemption and that forgiveness. And uh, with that, we have to understand a few things as we go. And this is the way I'd like to start today, with what we had prior to what we have. What we had. 
And when it speaks of redemption and forgiveness, now, he doesn't tell us right here directly what we had in reference to redemption, but redemption implies something. It implies a, a previous condition that we needed redeemed from, right? To have redemption, there's got to be something to redeem from. And generally, when the word is used in Scripture, we're, we're talking in reference to slavery. Slavery in sin. That's what we had. We had. And there's many passages we can dig through here this morning to see that. But just for a few moments, let's go over to Romans chapter 6. Back up a little bit. Romans 6. Handful of verses here. I'm going to just, I'll keep them in order, but they're going to miss a few. Verse number 6. Romans 6, verse 6. As Paul's writing here, he says, Knowing this, that our old self is crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You see that phrase? That we would no longer be. What does that imply? We were, right? We were slaves to sin. The word is doulas. It's a bondservant. It's a slave. And we were slaves to sin. Verse number 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? He makes a simple picture. When you present yourself to somebody as slaves, it's obedience and if you're a slave to sin, you will obey it, right? That's in the description of it as well. Uh, obedience comes with slavery. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, notice what it tells us about our past. Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So again, what we had was a slavery to sin. Verse 19, just a couple more verses. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness... Now, that says a lot about our former way of life, doesn't it? Slaves in this department. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And the last one, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Again, he, he pounds the point, doesn't he? Slaves of sin, slaves of sin, slaves of sin. He does not tell us that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. That's what we were redeemed from, but that's exactly the situation. Now I'm going to tell you how to become a slave. Alright? How to become a slave. In the scriptures, it tells us that you could be bought. Matter of fact, you might find this very interesting. A father could sell his daughter. Did you know that? That was in the book of Exodus and the book of Nehemiah. Both mentions those situations. A widow 
might sell her children to pay off their father's debt. A man could sell himself. Even a woman could sell herself. But you can be bought as slaves. You could be an exchange. Somebody who who exchanges you for a horse. <laughs> that doesn't sound very nice, does it? You could be exchanged for some property. You could be exchanged for provision, for cattle, for, for other slaves. You can become a slave to satisfy a debt. A, a, a debt has to be paid, and you don't have the, the funds to pay that debt. Uh, you can become a slave to pay off a debt. Creditors did that all the time. They they would make people say there, there was a, a very sad story in the Old Testament in the days of Elisha of a woman whose husband was dead and the creditor came and said, I'm taking your two children to pay the debt. To satisfy the debt. It could be that you became a slave by a gift. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a nice gift? Uh, they had gifting of, of slaves, and sometimes uh, that was uh, the way one became. It could be a gift. It could be an inheritance. Somebody inherited you as a slave. You could have voluntarily became a slave. There are instances of that uh, that we read of in the book of Exodus. Matter of fact, it has even a, a ceremony that went with it. If you chose to become somebody's slave, you happened to like your master and you wanted to be a slave permanently, uh, they had this nice little ceremony. They took you up to the corner of the post and they took this awl and they put it right behind your ear and they smacked it with a hammer and put a hole right through it. What do we call that today? <laughs> it was kind of form of piercing, but it was a mark uh, that the slave wore to say, I, I am loyal to my master forever with my life. And they said, well, why did they ever, why did they pierce their ear like that? And they said that it might have been a reference to, I listened to him. Very interesting. But you might voluntarily become a slave. You might uh, have been arrested and you become a slave. The thief was, uh, according to Exodus 22, a thief thief in making restitution, if he had nothing, he was sold to be a slave. You might be a slave by birth. Your, your parents were slaves. Now, here's an interesting situation. Your parents are slaves, and, and you're born, and you're born into the house as a slave. Now, when the debt is paid, they're free to go, but you're not. Because you were born into the house as a slave. Of course, there's many instances in the Old Testament, especially of, of slaves made because they were captured in war. They were prisoners of war. And as a result of that, they were reduced right to slavery. Now, this picture of slavery is, is seen in many different lights. But let's think of it in a spiritual concept for a minute, and what we were. How many of these might have applied to us as to the nature of our slavery to sin? By birth? Yes. We're born with a sin nature, aren't we? Voluntarily? Yes, because 
our own actions uh, put us in that situation. Satisfaction of debt. Is there a price for sin? Yes, there is. Slavery is that too. It's something we cannot pay. It's something we cannot pay. Capture in war. There's a spiritual conflict going on, isn't there? We can go through this list and see it. But sin does enslave. Sin does enslave. In our society, we like to use the words like disease instead of addiction. We like to soften words up and and kind of pull it away from the whole concept of sin. We don't like to use the word sin in this society. We don't want to point out that that's sin. We we make up other words to, to soften the blow of such a thing. Now, if a man is drowning, you see that man drowning, and, and you run up to the lifeguard and you say, uh, um, there is a man down there who is water distressed and oxygen deficient. What kind of results do you get from that? Or do you run up and say, there's a man drowning? You know, our world doesn't need to hear disease and all these other... It needs to hear the word sin. That's our problem, isn't it? It's sin. We were slaves to sin. That's the condition of this world, apart from Christ. Slaves to sin. It's slavery. What do you need? Redeemed. Right? We need redeemed. There's no other way to say it. That's what Scripture says it in black and white. It's a condition of man apart from Christ. That's why redemption, redemption is so beautiful. You see? Scripture would testify it from page after page after page that we have been slaved to sins. We've been slaved to sin. And that's part of our understanding of verse number 7. Another part of it is in verse number 7, the second part, and it says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses. Peritoma is a Greek word. Very interesting word. Peritoma. Peritoma is the, the word for a, uh, they call it a side slip. Now that's, that's a very mild way of saying something. It's whether you're walking on, here's a picture, you're walking on a ledge, and as you're walking on this ledge, your foot goes off the side. Guess what happens? You go down, don't you? You fall off the ledge because you have made a error in your step. Now, it might have been accidental. It might have been on purpose. Either way, the word covers both of those thoughts in the sense of uh, uh, making a bad step. Making a bad step. So they illustrated as walking on the cliff and you step off the side and you fall. That's a trespass. Sometimes you might be on somebody's property and and not notice the sign that says, do not trespass. Sometimes you're on their property and you knew the sign said, do not trespass. But either way, it's trespassing, isn't it? Either way. Now, what's interesting about that word peritoma is that it means more than just taking a bad step. It means to fall beside something or near something. The word para is the word we use alongside. Somebody who works alongside paralegal works alongside the lawyers. 
we have parachurch ministries, ministries that work alongside churches. And I'm not sure what parachute is supposed to mean, because we don't want it just alongside, do we? But we use the word para for alongside. Now, that's interesting, because that's the first part of the word. The second word, though, is going to stun you. Paratoma, toma, P-T-O-M-A, the P is somewhat silent there, but toma is the word for corpse. Matter of fact, a corpse that has been killed by violence. So you're walking along a cliff, you take a bad step, you fall, and you land next to something. That's what it is. A corpse of someone who has already fallen violently from that ledge. Now, that's a picture of it. And it's not a pretty picture at all. I know that. But that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses. There's that word again. We were down there by our own actions. We fell off the the mark. But here we are down there alongside all the others who had fallen the same place. You may say, well, that sounds like a very inactive location now, but it's not, because Ephesians 2 says, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the air, and so on. Verse 3, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the mind. uh, and of the flesh, by nature children of wrath. We were active in that position. Not just laying there, but very active in our trespasses. Living it out. Alongside all the other corpses. We were living there with them. Living it out. That's not pretty, is it? But it's reality. What we have before us here in Ephesians is about what we have, but we have to understand what we had. What we had was slavery. What we had was trespasses. Neither one of those are are items that we could have remedied. (laughs) Not for a a zillion years could we have solved that problem. Thank the Lord that he did. And that's where we come to our passage here today. What we have. Ephesians 1.7 What we have is redemption. What we have is the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have that right now. We're not waiting for it. It's not slowly developing piece by piece, or he's giving you a portion today, and if you behave yourself, he'll give you another piece tomorrow. That's not it. We have it. Completely, fully, we have it. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. Now, the first word we have, redemption. Apolutrosis is what we have, and it sounds like something you need medication for. Apolutrosis. What's that? That's the word for redemption. It's kind of an interesting word. Like I said, I wanted to define these words for you here today on purpose. Uh, we use the word redemption as a, uh, a riddance of something, a deliverance. We use the word redemption, of course. But the idea is that they have to be released by paying a ransom, paying a price, in order to set them free. That's the way the word is used often, and even in Greek literature, of paying a price for the release of an individual. The, the tool that they use, the price that is paid, 
is the Lutron. The Lutron. It, it's the tool used. Usually we would say it's money. You know, money speaks, right? And uh, we use the word money. And Peter even uses it in this sense when he says in First Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you're not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I like to think of the Lutron as a crowbar, prying us out of a situation that we couldn't get out of. Growing up, my dad uh, had a garage down in the property where he fixed many, 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 many cars. And uh, I was in that garage often with him as he would work on cars, and I'd notice how many of his crowbars laid around the, the room. Uh, some of them were bent. Some of them were bent from exertion, trying to get something out. He would bend those bars. Sometimes he'd bend it on purpose in order to make it a certain shape so it can fit in a certain spot in order to do its job. And I kind of think of that every time I see the word Lutron here and, and how it applies to our redemption. How the Lord has done something that bent him, that changed him. He died, right? He was crucified, right? Why did he do that? It says through his blood, right? What is the value of that? What is the purpose of that? What is the wages of sin? Death. What happens when you spill your blood? You lose your life. True? It's all in that picture. Jesus took the penalty for our sin. He took our place in paying that penalty. He gave his life. He gave his blood. That's the Lutron he gave that frees us. That's what he's done. And as the, the first part of the word, we have the word apo, apolutrosis, apo. It's a simple preposition, means to be off of something or separated from something, away from something. And when you diagram it, you pick a circle. And say the circle represents sin and our slavery of sin. And you draw an arrow outside the circle, heading away. It's not coming back. It's heading away. It's away from. It's away from. And that's the beauty of this whole word here. Because even when you add it, and intensifies it. And what that shows us is, when Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. He has completely pulled us away from it. Separated us. No return. You see? That's what he's done. Now, it's not based on you. The redemption has nothing to do with what you could contribute to it, or what I could contribute to it. It was what he contributed to it. It's what he has done. And was his blood sufficient? For how long? Forever. Do you see the word now starting to come out? Oh, it's fascinating. When Christ has applied his blood to setting us free, you're taken out of that marketplace and you're not there anymore. He's redeemed you. We sang the words of songs this morning about redemption. That's the beauty of the word. He has redeemed us. This is what we have. We have redemption through his blood. Oh, it's beautiful. 
He set us free. Romans uh, tells us this in several places, but Romans 8.2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Understand this. Every time you see the word redemption, put the word next to it. Complete release. Complete release. That's what he's done. It's a permanent thing. It's a payment made, and it is satisfying to God. We have redemption. I like that, don't you? We have it. We have that. So we're holding that now, and we're also holding this forgiveness. It says here, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And I know when I walk into this little neighborhood here, there are some people here still harboring things, perhaps in their heart. They said, boy, you know, I wish the Lord would forgive me for that. Let's look again at this word, all right? Look at it carefully. We have what? Forgiveness, right? Doesn't it say the word forgiveness here? Forgiveness. Now, is there any maybes on that one? Kind of? Sort of? Nothing of that nature. We have forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's pardon. Pardon for the fact that we have sinned. Now, I've got to use my words very carefully so you understand this. It also has the word apo on it, so it's separated completely. It's moved away completely. That's part of the word here. And what he's done is he sent away. He's dismissed. He's released. He's set free in the word forgiveness. Intensely done it. Completely done it. That's the beauty of forgiveness. Intensely forgiven, completely forgiven. Released from the bondage, from the imprisonment. Forgiveness is a pardon. Now, one commentator wrote it this way. He wrote it, he says, it's a letting go as if they had never committed these sins. And and really, I don't think that's the best way to say this. As if they've never committed the sin. You can't erase history. The fact of it remains. The fact, the history of it, the account of it. But you can't have the account cleansed. You can't have the ledger wiped clean. See, the pardon in this is like what we would understand. A forgiveness of a crime. The cancellation of the penalty. It doesn't erase the history. How many times have we seen over the history, some of us especially, uh, that the president will pardon somebody, but it's still in the history book, isn't it? We still read of the crimes, we still read of the story, but the the person has been set free by a pardon. Uh, the, the guilty verdict remains, the penalty though, is what's set free. Now I'll give you a good example of this. Go back to the Old Testament story and think of this one. You could remember by now. Uh, David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Do you realize that what David did there was more than just one crime? Of course, we identify adultery as the first one, don't we? Oh, that's the one. Uh, David committed adultery. What's the penalty for adultery? Any guess? I'll read it to you. Leviticus 20, verse 10, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, 
one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's pretty clear, isn't it? All right, was David guilty of the crime? What was the penalty? Okay. Do you know what God thinks of lying? Did David lie during that story? Did David ever deceive anyone during that story? Well, let's consider what God has to say about lying for a minute. Uh, lying is any time uh, something is done with the intent to deceive. Speaking falsehood is part of it. Even half-truths are included in that. And the Lord made it very clear in his word. He hates lying. Hates it. Here's the penalty. Uh, Revelation 21, 27, and also 22, verse 15. Those who lie are excluded from heaven. That sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Matter of fact, it goes on to say in Revelation 21, verse 8, that those who are liars are guilty and are cast into the lake of fire. That's pretty heavy. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. They stood up in a worship service and lied to the Holy Spirit and before man, and they dropped dead. That's a great way to mess up a worship service. But they did. And sure enough, did God take that seriously? Very seriously. Matter of fact, it says this in Psalms 5, verse 6, God will destroy them that speak lies. Proverbs 19, 5, He that uttereth lies shall not escape. Matter of fact, go over to Psalm 24 for a minute. I'll show you another phrase in reference to uh, the Lord. And liars. Psalm 24. You can keep your place here in the book of Psalms for a few minutes. But Psalm 24. Here's David speaking. Notice, it's a psalm of David. And he's talking about who is able to go up before the Lord and worship Him. And he says, the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. The liar was disbarred from rendering any kind of true or acceptable worship before God. David wrote these words. I can't imagine how they chewed him up for a year in his conscience after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba. For over a year, we understand, David had that on his heart. And he's the same one who wrote these words. Who can go up? Before the Lord. Who can offer this worship before the Lord? Not the liar. Not the liar. That had to have been tormenting for him. But we also have not only lying, murder. You know murder was part of the whole story too? Uriah, the husband, was put to death. David schemed that too. And Leviticus 24, verse 17 says, If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. So put it all together. What does David have? Consequence of his sin. We call it capital punishment. But 
God's soul said simply that soul that sin shall die. It's a death. It's a spiritual death on top of that. It's a separation from God. It's terrible when you put it all together. And sometime about a year later, Nathan walks into the presence of King David, tells him a story. David gets all worked up about it. You could read it in Second uh, Samuel 12 sometime. David gets all, all worked up about this individual, third party, who is deceiving this other and, and stealing from him and killing and, and such like that. And David got all worked up and David heard from Nathan, you're that man. David's next words. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan's next words. The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Really? Took away the sin. You shall not die. You ever see Psalm 51 up close? Go over there. Now we'll follow David's words on this very topic. This is what he wrote. It even says in the caption above, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Then what was evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make known, make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Look at that phrase one more time. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Did David know his accountability here? Yes. Did he know the punishment for this? Yes. The moment that finger was pointed right at him and Nathan spoke, David says, I'm a dead man. He knew it. He knew it. And he's pleading for mercy here. He's pleading for mercy all the way through this psalm. Pleading for the mercy of the Lord. Deliver me, he says in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. He's pleading. Now, I want to ask you something. You know the punishment. You know the crime. You know the whole story here. Did David get some sort of special favor from God? the same thing you've gotten, same thing I've gotten. We call it grace. We call it mercy. You may say, but, but shouldn't he have been held up as an example? I mean, a king who took his you know, authority too far, and, and shouldn't he have been made a, a public example? Yes, he has been made a public example. We have seen what grace looks like. We have seen what mercy looks like. Anything less we have received? I don't think so. You see, we can read the life of David and understand a thousand different things what not to do. But we can also learn what God has done in so great 
and so wonderful. Mercy, compassionate. See, when we start to look through the episodes of sin, it's easy to point fingers, isn't it? That sin's worse than this one, and that one, this one. And we evaluate people by forgiveness. You know, how much they need for that, and how much they need for this, and punishments, and what's appropriate for this. But what we read in Scripture is, we have forgiveness. We have it. Right? It's not talking about what you've done, it's talking about what He's done. We have forgiveness. And the way he's done that in verse number 8 of Ephesians 1 was that he's lavished it on us. Now that's a beautiful word in understanding. He's lavished it on us. He didn't just meet the need. He exceeded the need. You see the picture here? I think lavish is a beautiful word for it. It's the idea of overflowing and superabundant. It's over and above the measure the measure. There's an interesting couple of words that fit into the thesaurus when you look up this word in the Greek, lavished. It has also the word violent and vehement. And when you think that through, you say, wow. <laughs> Does that mean God really meant for us to be forgiven? Intensely meant it. That's what's the concept of this word. It's a profuse, it's an extravagant, even, this is how some people view it, it's a wasteful thing. Now I'm going to describe wasteful just for a minute, because that's the way Judas saw it one day. When a woman came and she broke open that bottle of costly perfume and started to pour it on the feet of Jesus, remember his response? Why is she wasting this? That's all wrapped up in this word here. I don't call it wasteful, I call it wonderful. That here, no matter the degree of our sin, God exceeds it with His grace. God exceeds it with His forgiveness. And we might have been slaves to sin, but He set us free not to return. When He has forgiven us of our trespasses. How far away have they gone? As far as the east is from the west. Spend the rest of the day measuring that. See what you find out. Find out. He says that he's put it behind the, his back. He's buried it in the depths of the sea. How many different ways can God say it? When he's forgiven you, he has lavished it on you. You see it? Lavished it. Don't ever think that somehow your sin is greater than our God. It's not. He's lavished it. Our forgiveness beyond our slavery, beyond our debt. See, God's grace is always bigger than our need. Always bigger than our need. I said that before you today because I do know that at times we tend to carry those things around, don't we? Those burdens, those sins, we might even nurse them for a whole year like David did, or maybe longer. All the while we've had a God who's never changed in His compassion. His mercy, His love for you. Do you have forgiveness or don't you? What does the text say? We have it, right? We have it. Do you know that? Do you know that? Why? Why do we have it? 
Well, we can go through a thousand reasons, but I'll give you a couple. Ephesians 1 verse 3 starts with, Blessed be God. What do you think the reason is is that he's done this? That we might praise him? That we might praise him? That those who are redeemed of the Lord say so. You've been set free? Say so. You've been forgiven? Say so. Praise him. Even David. Again, David wrote these words. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Fanny Crosby. No, not Fanny Crosby. Got to think for a minute. She was in the concentration camp. Corey Ten Poon. She's the one who said that uh, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. That's a beautiful picture of grace, isn't it? He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you. Here's a contrast. You're in a pit. He pulls you out. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. All that lavish? Wow. He satisfies your years with good things. The Lord performs righteous deeds. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Peter would tell us this as well, that we are here to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are to proclaim His excellencies. Have you said anything about it lately? He's forgiven you. He's lavished it upon you. Have you proclaimed it lately? We're called to that. But that's one thing. We're also, as I wrap up my thoughts, We're here to serve Him, right? We're here to serve Him. And how wonderful is all this to know that we are free. And because we're free, we don't have to spend all our time trying to get free. We are free. We are free to serve Him. And this world needs that. We're free to go. We're free to carry the message, aren't we? Because we have been set free. We can go to a world and show them what we have received. We have it, don't we? Take it. Show it. Talk about it. This world needs it. You know that as well as I do. That's God's investment in you. God's investment in me. Forgiveness. Redemption. It has a purpose, doesn't it? A purpose. So that you have all that you need to serve Him. Nothing tying you down. He's forgiven. He's redeemed. Have you talked to him about that lately? Have you? I'll bring it back up one more time. Maybe you're carting something around in your heart and you haven't dealt with that. Why don't you talk to the one who already knows what you're doing? Talk to the Lord about it. And then talk to him about what Christ has done through his blood. Say, Lord, these words here. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Lord, that's what I need and that's what you've done. Have you talked to Him about that? Let's be done with those things. Let's talk to our Lord about these things, that we might be free to serve, because we have these things. We have these things. They're gifts from our Father. Part of the blessings, right? 
Thank the Lord for it. Heavenly Father, we come before you today very humble, I hope, when we realize, Lord, how how sinful we are and how wonderful you are to forgive us, to redeem us, to take us out of darkness and put us in light, to take us out of death and put us in life, to set us free from one kingdom of destruction and put us into the kingdom of light that belongs to your Son. That you should love us like this, Lord, is amazing. That your compassion reaches us and changes us. And indeed, Lord, in Christ we are changed forever. Forever. We have been set free. And Lord, with that, we come with our thanks this morning. We must say thank you. And even though our words are quite inadequate for the praise that you deserve, we express them anyway from our hearts, Lord. And thank you that you allow even voices out of tune to sing before your throne. Lord, we praise you for what you have done. Lord, also we ask that you might give us the perspective that we might live in light of what you have done. That our lives will reflect freedom, forgiveness, redemption, and not that former way of life that was a slave to sin. Keep us mindful that we're children of the King and that we have redemption. We have forgiveness and it's been lavished on us. May we not forget that, Lord, as we step from this room, as we walk throughout the course of this week, as we have opportunity in a world around us to proclaim the good news. There's other people who need it too, Lord. May we be quick to open our mouths. Use us, Lord. We are here to be used by you, to serve you. And since you've given to us this wonderful gift, may we be quick to talk about it. Use us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.